Blog Talk Radio. Oh, but yeah, so now we've got everybody here. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, definitely a little bit of a trip down memory lane last weekend. So we took our nibbling to college, which is at my alma mater with my sister. His alma mater was 10 miles away. Yep, just up the road. And yeah. 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 <laughs> They're loving it, by the way. They're having so much fun. It's awesome. But, yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, so did that, and you drove cross-country with your sister? I did. I drove from New York to New Mexico in four days. Got back Saturday. My body's still not happy with me. And, uh, yeah, now here we are. But I did get to visit a fellow independent ghost tour operator in... uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm-hmm. went on Old Town uh, Albuquerque uh, History and Ghost Tours, and it was fabulous. So I definitely recommend if you guys go to Albuquerque, check them out. And if you ever need a reminder on that, or if you're ever traveling anywhere and you want a recommendation for a local ghost tour, let us know. Let us know. We'll go ahead. We'll help you help you find out find the uh, the the locally owned and operated uh, tour in whatever area that you are traveling to, assuming that they exist. Yes. But there are a lot of uh, locally owned and operated, uh, uh, yeah, locally a lot of locally owned and operated tours all across the country and even around the world. So, yeah, we uh, we're happy to go ahead and help you out, help you find those. In fact, I helped one of the guys who was heading off to Europe in just a few weeks. Uh, I was like, okay, in York, this is where you want to go. In Edinburgh, this is where you want to go. He's like, I booked this tour. I said that is with the right company. Oh, and uh, sorry. We're, Lee is not here tonight. We're getting texts from Lee. But hi, Lee. I'm assuming that she that they're, that they're watching because I think that they're watching and then sending us comments. But so, hi, Lee. I'm assuming you're somewhere in the crowd there this evening. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry that you can't be with us here this evening. Yeah. But yeah. So. We were missing you. Yeah. Vincent's pouting over there. And sleeping. Vincent's usually pouting and sleeping. Yeah. It's kind of his. His ML. His, his, his default. <laughs> his default mode. And Nico is not happy because I took over his box from my crafty for the Halloween build. Which has started. Which has started. I there are crafts everywhere. Yeah. And free. <laughs> uh, so anyway, but yeah, y'all came here to talk about uh, haunted colleges and universities. Yes. Again. This is volume two. Volume two. I have an international of volume three and four started. Oh, yes. Yeah. Just so y'all know. This will not be the last time you hear about haunted colleges and universities. We, we might need to do a back to school in uh, January. Yeah. And this, <laughs> and this is, we don't even relegate all of our colleges and universities to these episodes. I yeah. mean, remember, I mean, University of North Dakota. Yeah. That was a huge one. Took up a good chunk of our haunted North Dakota show that we did. Barely scratched. The Barely scratched the surface they there. And when we did um, Columbus, we yeah. talked a little bit there, and again, barely scratched the surface. So there's a lot of spirited history associated with uh, yeah, college academia. academia all over the place. But yeah, so we got we got a lot to talk about this evening. Uh, well, yeah. Tell like you can check the comments. Yeah, I'll try catching up on the comments. But. If Mr. Meeker will let you. Oh, just get things. You know, fall asleep there. He's like, no, but you gotta keep heading. Anyway. Anyway. 
<clears throat> so it's the end of August, meaning that students across the country are heading back to their institutions of higher learning, if they haven't already checked back into the dormitories already. For many of these students, the college experience will not only define some of the most formative, excuse me, formative years of their lives, but it will define much of their existence even after they have departed the classroom for the merciless grind of the real world. For some, the alma mater is a point of pride, something that they can look back on with a sense of accomplishment and nostalgia. This is not to say that their pride is necessarily limited to graduates, but also current students, family members, staffers, professors, and even members of the surrounding community can all develop an emotional attachment to their various colleges and universities across the country and around the world. This might go a long way towards explaining why some of them have become a little more permanently attached to their school than they ever attended. Their school pride, uh, outliving their mortal existence for some colleges and universities, they sometimes find themselves becoming a permanent home of the spirits that have decided to, of course, skip the administration process. And the institutions that host these lingering spirits, they handle them in their various ways. Some embrace them as part of the institution's culture. I will say, at my alma mater, there is an FYP dedicated to ghost legends and lore. Person that we're very happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're like, we could teach that. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. What was that? I'm spooking. Oh. I'm sorry, buddy. Come back up here. No, we are so spooked right now. Oh, dear. Okay, moving on. Some refuse to acknowledge their existence, and others, well, they just step aside and let them do their thing. After all, classes need to go on. Okay. Since we're starting in York. Yeah, so uh, this was a college campus that I went to numerous times um, when I was uh, in my youth. Uh, the, uh, swimming. Yeah, swimming. So when all growing up, I, I was uh, in swimming. So I did competitive swimming. My parents got me involved in the YMCA league when I was like five years old, and I just well you never swam. I never quit until I ultimately graduated college. So and I did stuff coach. with it. And well, yeah, then I coached for a year. So <laughs> it was something that I did a lot and wanted traveling all across New York State and beyond uh, as part of some of the competitions that I was in. And uh, for this first stop, it's in Central New York, and we find the city of Cortland. Now, originally an industrial town, life in modern Cortland largely revolves around the State University of New York at Cortland, or SUNY Cortland for short. Originally founded as the Cortland Normal School in 1868, this center of learning has grown into a respected institution that has hosted many generations of students, with upwards of 6,500 students on campus in any given year, plus the staff and faculty that support the school's day-to-day business. With so many people coming and going from this 211-acre campus, it's a little surprise that a few spirits have hung on here over the years. The most prominent spooky stories from SUNY Cortland feature an array of characters, including a football player, a former cook, and a ghost named Elizabeth. Not you. You're still here. On the seventh floor of Clark Hall, near the center of campus, the spirit of a red dragon makes an annual appearance. Now, before you start thinking of fire-breathing scaly creatures or perhaps the Hannibal Lecter book, the Red Dragons are the sports teams for SUNY Cortland. Kind of a cool mascot, if you ask me. I'll take it. Yeah. For the purpose of this story, the Red Dragon in question is the aforementioned member of the football team. 
His identity is unknown, but he does cut a bit of a frightful figure when he shows up. He is seen in his uniform and has a cut above his eyebrow that perpetually bleeds. He's affectionately known as the Gridiron Ghost. He's most frequently seen roaming about the hallways and sitting outside on a windowsill on the seventh floor of Clark Hall. The Cortland football program was established back in 1893, so it has a long history and many thousands of players have come and gone from its roster over the years. Our best guess is that the Gridiron Ghost is the spirit of a bygone player who makes an occasional trip back to campus to relive some of the glory days, but barring some more definitive evidence, we will likely never know for sure. Moving towards the old center of campus, we can find Brockway Hall a cornerstone building in the university's major expansion in the early 1950s. Flanked by Cheney and DeGroote uh, halls on either side, Brockway Hall was originally a multi-purpose building that featured a major dining hall. While the dining facilities have moved on to more modern structures, there are still some uh, snack amenities available in the building. And it's here that things took a turn for the weird one morning. As the story goes, students making a pot of coffee in the kitchen caught sight of a man standing at the top of a staircase. Uh, this, this is the set of stairs that leads to the ground floor as well as the loading dock. When the students asked him if they could assist him in any way, he simply turned away and left without saying another word. He vanished into thin air by passing through the small break room adjacent to the kitchen. A thorough investigation fails to identify the mysterious man, but he became known as the cook due to his tendency to hang around the kitchen area. We must wonder if he might be keeping company with our next spirit. As previously noted, connecting the Brockway Hall on the north is Cheney Hall. It's here that lingers the spirit of Elizabeth. Once a resident of Channing Hall in the early 1980s, it's said that in a rage her boyfriend pushed her from the port. Mail. Mail just got here. Okay. <laughs> so that in a rage, her boyfriend pushed her from the fourth floor staircase. The university embraced her untimely death as a, a mural was erected in her honor. Ever since, strange occurrences have occurred on the grounds. Students living on the fourth floor have reported being overtaken by an uneasy feeling after looking at Elizabeth's mural, with some stating that it felt as if the painting was looking back at them. Others have seen Elizabeth herself as a misty figure that approaches people with arms stretched out. By the time you try to focus on her, she vanishes into thin air. Ironically, after her death, another female student fell in the same manner as Elizabeth from the fourth floor. Being drunk at the time, she leaned too far across the banister and fell. Amazingly, she was unharmed from the end. Perhaps she was aided by her unfortunate predecessor. Elizabeth has taken on a role as protector, as she has been known to frighten off boyfriends threatening violence on female residents. Moving to Shane Hall, we have the first-hand account of a student named Valerie. Valerie stated that, the women's bathroom on the second floor of Shea Hall has a ghost whom I've seen at least twice. All of my paranormal experiences in this bathroom have been late at night when it's very quiet and I seem to be alone. I have seen the toilet cell doors or their shadows when I am in a stall move when there was no one, uh, no one around and certainly no air moving through the space. 
They have not opened or nor closed completely, nor made a sound. It's as if an invisible hand is quietly pushing or pulling the dark door part way. Once while washing my face, and thus my glasses wore off, I briefly noticed a figure reflected in the mirror. The figure passed behind me going towards the showers. When I finished at the sink, I peeked into the shower area and called out so I wouldn't turn off the light on anybody. But nobody was there. I just chalked it up as strange yet unimportant and went to bed. On another occasion, I was again washing my face and no one else was in the bathroom. This time, I was looking at myself in the mirror and I clearly saw a young Caucasian lady with slightly wavy brown hair wearing a white nightgown glide silently behind me and move towards the bathroom door. Despite my glasses not being on, she was close enough to me that I could see her features in the mirror. I did not feel anything when she passed me. I thought it was my roommate since this person looked like her. I finished up and realized that I never heard nor saw the door open and nobody was in any of the stalls nor in the showers. When I returned to my dorm, my roommate was fast asleep and wearing a black canisole. I will note that at no time did I ever feel afraid, and I honestly didn't think I was seeing ghosts at first. I may have seen or noticed a ghost passing back and forth in this bathroom at other times and simply thought it was a fellow student. I have felt that whatever was in there was not aware of living people. SUNY Cortland is one of those institutions that somewhat embraces its spooky nature, somewhat being here. History classes at the university have studied ghost stories on campus and have even developed a ghost tour of the campus as a tool to study how lore is passed down over generations. Associate Professor Adam Falkenberry says of the story, even if you don't believe in ghosts, and I'm one, ghost stories can reveal the way people in the past held attitudes, beliefs, and values. The popular ghost stories that get passed between students at SUNY Cortland, for example, can tell us about what students cared about on campus going back to the 1980s. In addition to previously mentioned locations, the ghost tour also shares some haunted lore from Core Union and Van Hoosen Hall, all spooky stories that were uh, excavated from deep in the university archives at the Memorial Library. According to Falkenberry, the real-life influences behind shadowy apparitions was a worthy topic, which focused on how scholars interpret human curiosity about the afterlife. Interestingly, Falkenberry and his, his, uh, his students found that most of the stories were recorded around the same period in the 1980s, at the time when the campus opened the voice office in Core Union, where diverse uh, campus community members could express their also, at this time, the Counseling Center shifted from serving as an academic remediation center to offering students emotional support. Fultonberry's class concluded that although any direct link between the hauntings and the campus uh, reaction had been lost to history, the campus community responded to the reports of supernatural vision by assisting any students who might be struggling with mental health issues or as survivors of domestic violence. Student Emma Epping came to a conclusion that she wasn't anticipating as a part of the project. She said, although the project started out as finding out whether these stories were real or not and how they grew up on campus, this project turned into finding out how these ghost stories helped the campus become more inclusive and more aware of sexual abuse and mental health issues on campus. Moral of the story, Ghost stories are more than just stories. 
sometimes daring the motorcyclist to come out and show himself. We say, wait, uh, watch for about what you wish for here, huh? Remember this, Ray? You don't want to see him. Mm-hmm. Edwin don't want to see him either. Moving on. Moving to the eastern edge of campus, we're going to find Peabody Hall. Once a part of the Western Female Seminary, this institute stood independent of Miami University for 100 years before it was absorbed into the larger institution in 1974. Throughout most of its standalone existence, Western Female Seminary enjoyed a cordial, if not always warm, relationship with the neighboring Miami University. During the 19th century, contact between the men and the women of the two institutions was strictly told by administrators in concern for the moral well-being of their charges. Y'all know what happened out to the woods <laughs> beyond their eyes. Okay. The Western Female, Female Seminary Principal Helen Peabody, an outspoken opponent of co-education, was especially protective of her students and always suspicious of the Miami men who occasionally, and not always innocently, wandered onto their property. Miss Peabody took her convictions to the grave, and it's hard not to imagine how she would have reacted at the sight of Miami men freely roaming the corridors of the hall, but now bearing her name. In fact, it appears Miss Peabody may have done far more than merely turn over in her grave. According to some witnesses, her spirit leaves the tomb occasionally to watch over the women of Peabody Hall and to help the men who now dare to walk its corridors. Those who have seen her claim that Helen Peabody remains in death as she was in life. A very formidable woman. <laughs> well, then there's the Oxford Stimmies and Henry Floyd, Miami University's biggest sports fan uh, of the first half of the 20th century, and perhaps the nation's biggest skate crasher. During this time, Harry claimed to have gotten into 20 World Series games, eight Rose Bowls, three Orange Bowls, a Sun Bowl, without paying. He also claimed that he has attended 54 consecutive Miami homecoming games. It's very likely that Harry's claims are greatly exaggerated, but he was a familiar figure at Miami's sporting desk until his death in March 1950. He'd be decked out in a white suit and a hat, carrying an umbrella and a megaphone, sporting a mouthful of diamond-studded teeth. Harry was loved by the student body. But his headline-grabbing antics were a frequent source of misery for the administrators. Among these was his assertion that the Miami game outcomes were revealed to him in his dreams at night before they were played. He would predict those outcomes through his megaphone on game day, announcing to the crowd that I had a dream last night. Whatever one's opinion of Perry was, there was no doubt that he loved Miami University. Early In the early 1900s, he gave Miami a fountain built with his own hands in the area between the current King Library and Harrison Hall. As he did all the um, as he did with all his work, Harry left his signature on the phone so visitors would know the building identity. Members of the Miami community had mixed views about the artistic qualities of Thorpe's work, and his sound also gave that unwanted notoriety as a favorite spot for fraternity occasion activities. But no matter the controversy, Harry lovingly maintained it for most of his life. But the fountain quickly fell into disrepair after his death and had to be replaced with a smaller one in 1952. In 1959, the fountain was too removed and uh, because of septic problems, and it was replaced by a plaque and monument. This remaining token of remembrance may not be enough for Harry. 
He always wanted to be the center of attention, whether it be in life or death, and it said that you can even try to communicate with Harry by standing on the fountain's former site and calling on his name. Saint Harry can't resist the temptation calling back to those who are brave enough as we have. He's attacking our belief. Harry was definitely quite the character. Oh yeah. So yes, now we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna circle back to New York to a another college campus that I'm a little familiar with. I've had a few trips. I had fun this time with the team giving him some Yeah, you did. Trips down memory lane. Yeah, memory lane. We'll go with that. (laughs) So we're gonna land in the city of Troy just in the north of Albany. Now, I could use some very colorful language in describing this stop, as the university in question is a rival to both of our respective alma maters, but particularly my own. But for the the sake of this evening's show, I'll take the high road as we delve into the haunting tales of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. You had a lot of fun. Established in 1824, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute is renowned as being the oldest technological research university in the United States and is Maeve McKennedy of the original Albany Ghost Tour notes, the university's age leaves it right as a place to have gathered many emotions over the years, leaving a spirited mark on the landscape. Maeve has been offering a Spirit of Rensselaer Ghost Tours since 2015, and we'll have a sampling of the tales that you might catch on that tour for you this evening. Starting behind Russell Sage Dining Hall, it seems that the building's namesake may linger on within the walls of this historic structure. Sage's story is a classic rags-to-riches tale. Started off with a limited education, but worked his way up and eventually became a millionaire who enjoyed a lavish, extravagant life as a bachelor. However, he was also a man with deep prejudice, a misogynist who hated education because he himself wasn't educated at primary school. When he died in 1906, he left all of his wealth to his wife, Olivia Sage. Olivia then provided the funds for building RPI's Russell Sage Dining Hall and Laboratory. She also used his money to fund an all-women liberal arts college named after him, Russell Sage College, in the heart of Albany. In doing this, Olivia supported women and education, the two things that Russell hated. Leaving Russell Sage rolling in his grave, since the completion of the Russell Sage Dining Hall and Laboratory and the Liberal Arts College, the spirit of Russell has been haunting these buildings named after him. Dark, menacing shadow figures have been attributed to Russell, and while no one has come to harm from their encounters, it is a heart-pounding experience that none have a desire to repeat. But there's more to the Sage Laboratory than Russell's spirit. In the 1970s, there was an experiment going on in the basement involving testing the pollution levels in the Hudson River. During this experiment, there was a spill which caused the laboratory to temporarily shut down. Worse, a woman came into contact with the spill and contracted a disease that subsequently resulted in her death. Since that tragic incident, a woman's spirit has been seen in the state's laboratory with one professor reporting that they looked up from some paperwork to find the spectral woman glaring at them. 
In another case, a woman received an eerie and disturbing voicemail inside inside Sage Laboratory. The voicemail left her so shaken that she contacted the public safety office. Their investigation not only failed to identify the caller, but it also determined that there was no source for the call. It had effectively originated from nowhere, leading many to believe that it was the echo of a distressed call from the unfortunate woman who became ill and died from the accident in 
FUD, and many report feeling the presence of an unseen entity or experience feelings of being watched. With such a heritage, RPI's West Hall is the kind of place some will either speak out for class assignments and others will try to schedule their classes to avoid a spirited confine. If you want to hear some more, check out the original Albany Ghost Tour for some more spirited tales from this campus in New York's capital district. You get some more. I was just trying to look at the question. What's the question? Were there any challenges in your office? Certainly, Illinois. Um, the question. Looking, I, as I said, I've got like two more scripts of Haunted Illinois, and I'm sure I haven't touched all our Haunted universes, and I know I haven't touched all of these. So, Oh no, don't get the stuff to research. <laughs> All right. I know we've had some on the University of Illinois. So. Anyway, anyway, yes. Chris is going down on a research rabbit. Uh, 
would remind Ida Alicia of someone she was not too fond of during her life, as Ida Alicia was concerned about her husband having a bit of a roving eye. Ida was believed to have struggled with manic depressive illness, which may have led to her paranoid feelings towards her husband. After all, she met Henry while he was uh, while serving as a nurse at the first Mrs. Flagler. Her illness didn't lead to her being committed to a mental hospital, when she eventually passed away. Even if you don't see the gray lady uh, in the towers of Langley College, some students have reported hearing strange noises emanating from this part of the college that now serves as dormitory. As far as Henry Flagler's potential affairs, some say he took up with the mistress when Ida was committed. Story goes that the mistress was distraught at Henry's behavior, or that she too struggled with depression leading her to take her own life in the hotel. Since then, she's become the woman in black, an ominous spirited figure that is seen at the college today. Of course, the woman in black could be somebody else entirely. Uh, as the affair story of, excuse me, and the affair story of a fabrication of the critics of Flagler's community. No matter her origin, it doesn't make the encounter with the woman in black less unsettling. And that does bring us to the man himself. Mr. Henry Clyburn. Now, saying he was an industrialist is true, but also a major simplification of his lifetime accomplishment. He's credited with transforming Florida's economy in the late 19th century. His passion for, for the state led him to build several luxury hotels here, including the original Ponce de Leon. This fortune was built largely off of his role as one of the founders of Standard Oil. And though he did add to his fortune as a founder of the Florida's East Coast Railway, which is the line that extends uh, all the way to Key West. Again, favorite, favorite, favorite place. <laughs> now, Flagler died in 1913 after a fall from his home in Palm Beach. His body was brought to the to land uh, to lay in state in the rotunda. It is said that when the time came to transport his remains to his final resting place at the mausoleum at the Memorial Presbyterian Church, all the rotunda doors slammed shut as his coffin was lifted from the dive. When they did get the doors open to move Mr. Flagler's remains away, it seems the spirit lingered behind. Many eyewitnesses' accounts describe a man who closely resembles Flagler wearing a white suit and a walking cane. Uh, moving through the rotunda on the fourth floor balcony and the college corridors today. Even though the college might not have been part of his vision for the Ponce de Leon, the students and staff at Flagler College like to think that he take some pride in having his name on a college that continues to inspire students and be a major part of Florida's history. That was a fun one. It was. I like that one. Yeah, I can't imagine that. That it, hotel was phenomenal. I mean, you look it, at the old pictures of it. Well, go look at the pictures of Flagler College oh, now. Yeah. It's still immaculate. It's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, it does... Uh, yeah, it's it's something else. Hi, buddy. Are you playing it off with your life? Seems that way. All right. Now this, I think we had a lot of fun ones tonight, actually. So yeah, this next one, we're gonna sweep you off to Transylvania University. Not in Romania. In Lexington, Kentucky. Sorry, no vampires here, but we may have a man entombed under the university's old Morrison. Because why not? More on that in a moment. <laughs> Transylvania University was established as a law and medical school in Lexington in 1799. 
building on the legacy of the Transylvania Seminary that was established by an act of the Virginia Assembly in 1780 when Kentucky was still a part of the state of Virginia. So connection to us. Yep. Even more so, the university quickly gained a positive reputation as respected statesman and politician Henry Clay was appointed professor of law in 1805. Our guy. He is a Central Virginia native. So, yeah, he would go on to serve on the Board of Trustees and was a supporter of the university until his death in 1852. With Clay's support and the generally positive reputation of the university, many intellectuals and luminaries were drawn to the campus. One such individual was Constantine Rapinesque. Constantine was born in Constantinople in 1783 we're just bouncing all over the place. It's, it's, it's Istanbul. Now it's Istanbul. But it was Constantinople. And sure, they might be giants in my head. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Now, he was born in Constantinople in 18, or 1783 and immigrated to the United States in 1802. Here he met a number of young botanists and began to collect specimens himself. In 1804, Constantine returned to Europe with his specimens and settled in Palermo, Sicily. In 1815, he returned to the United States and continued to work diligently in the fields of biology and zoology. He came to Lexington and the famed Transylvania University as a professor of botany in 1819. Throughout his career, Constantine published the binomial names of over 6,700 species of flora and fauna, but he was never recognized during his life for his work. Perhaps it was because he was a little too eccentric for anyone's taste. On one occasion in 1818, Constantine was on a trip down the Ohio River when he stopped in Henderson, Kentucky at the home of John James Audubon, famed for his detailed color illustrations of birds in North America. In his room was Audubon's Audubon's prized violin and a live bat, which Constantine did not recognize. So, well, Constantine picked up the violin, gave it a swing at the bat in an attempt to seize the bat as a specimen, and, well, the violin didn't make it. To thank him for destroying the violin, Audubon later gave his guest a beautiful color illustration of a devil jack diamond fish, a 10-foot giant with bulletproof scales that swims in the depths of the Ohio River or so Constantine thought. Constantine wrote and published a paper on this beast, only to thereafter discover that Audubon had made up the creature as a joke. Needless to say, the two were not close. As a professor, Constantine was more likely to skip class than were his pupils. He used the time to take the nature walk. It is believed, but not confirmed, that Constantine also was quite friendly, too friendly, with the wife of college president Horace Holly. Further, Constantine, a Unitarian in faith, did not endear himself to the more conservative faith and faithful of Kentucky. So whatever the reason, Constantine was forced out of Transylvania in 1826. Upon his departure, however, he left a curse on both President Holly and Transylvania University itself. While the exact phrasing of the curse has been lost, the anger behind it has echoed through the generations since. 
The following year, Holly himself was forced from the college, whereupon he and his wife set out to teach in Louisiana. But Holly would not last long in the subtropical heat and humidity, and he caught yellow fever and died. Transylvania's main building, then within what is today Grass Park, burned within two years of the curse and will be replaced with a new central building known as Old Morrison in 1833. Constantine returned to Philadelphia after being relieved of his professorship and continued his work until his death from cancer in 1840. Without a church home, Constantine was buried in Ronaldson Cemetery at 9th and Bainbridge in Philadelphia. Ronaldson created his cemetery for travelers and others in Philadelphia who could not, without membership, be buried in a local church cemetery, but who would not, who would not be relegated to the public pauper's field. Even so, up to six bodies would share the same space at Ronaldson's. But when Ronaldson's cemetery was set to be destroyed in the 1920s, a group of Transylvanians uh, Transylvania students came to recover the body of the old professor with the hope that the curse would end. And so his body was removed from its grave, brought to the campus of Transylvania University, and reinterred in a small crypt under the steps of Old Morrison. Several untoward things have happened that have been blamed on the curse, including the suicide of one student who is said, uh, still said to haunt the university. Students sleeping in a certain dorm on campus have awoken to see a male in gym shirt standing at the foot of the bed who then vanishes. Old Morrison itself was nearly consumed by fire in 1969, but the structure was saved and restored and still stands as a symbol for the university. Though odd things still happen. Security guards are hesitant to walk the corridors at night lest they be tricked by an unseen force. And when other rare untoward events occur at the university, almost everyone gives a cautious glance back at the curse that has lingered over the campus for almost 200 years. Patrick commented, six bodies in the grave that's crowded. That's actually typical. Uh, and a lot of the family graves you go down enough so that you can pile on top of each other just to save space. And life. So not uncommon. <laughs> but Audubon had a sense of humor. Yes, he did. <laughs> that was the first lie about Audubon. No. no, although he didn't make up that one. No, he didn't. But he did make up the painting, which was really cool, by the way. Yes. All right, so now we're going to end in Boston, Massachusetts with Boston University and uh, Emerson College. These are um, the northeast of the Boston University campus and its neighbor. Considering the history of the city of Boston, it's easy to find haunted tales across the urban landscape, including on the grounds of the city colleges and universities. But for the sake of tonight, we're going to stick with these two institutions, and we'll be back in Beanpot again with more stories soon. The first stop is Miles Standish Hall, which is once the Miles Standish Hotel. And its hotel days, baseball superstar Babe Ruth used to be a regular guest at this hotel, with his favorite room being 818. Even though it has long since become a student dorm, it seems Babe Ruth isn't quite willing to let go of one of his favorite spaces, as he will come back to visit from time to time, giving quite a scare to any unsuspecting students who may have stumbled across his spirit. Miles Standish Hall is another holdover from its hotel days, uh, and that is the uncle of playwright author, playwright 
Arthur. There we go. Miller. Arthur. Now I get the R in the right spot. Oh. Anyway, uh, he actually took his own life on the ninth floor of the one-time hotel. Miller based the main character of his play, Death of a Salesman, actually on his uncle. Students residing in the space will experience cold spots and sometimes see drawers opening on their own. It's an unsettling experience for sure. Boston University has a track record of turning old hotels into student housing because practical. Hmm. Practical. Anyway, it's certainly easier than building from scratch in the middle of the big city. And the Charles Gate Hotel that was built in 1891 at the corner of Charles Gate East and Beacon Street along the north side of the city limits by the Charles River was purchased by Boston University in 1947 to be used as a dormitory. But after 26 years, the university sold it. It became tenement housing in 1973, and in 1981, Emerson College purchased it to use it as a dormitory after Boston University sold it. The building was turned into, um, oh, that's a repeat. Sorry about that. Anyway, the Charles Gate uh, has seen many people from all walks of life over the years and endured several renovations. Allegedly, the mafia executed people in the building, and several residents committed suicide. Although finding proof of these stories, uh, of course, is difficult at best. <laughs> Given the nature of the stories, it's unsurprising that it's unlike the benevolent spirit of Babe and uh, that haunts the Miles Spanish Hall, the spirit that haunts the Charles Gate is a little bit more sinister. In an article by Emerson Today, expands on the uh, haunting experiences in the infamous building, which some students reported sightings of dark figures in the room, toilets flushing unprompted, and alarms going off without being set. Others reported feelings of uneasiness, chills, and overall bad vibes. There are the slamming of doors, screams in the middle of the night, and, of course, levitating objects. The hauntings of the former Charles Gate Hotel during Emerson's college era became so well-known that the Berkeley Beacon and now defunct Boston Phoenix wrote several articles about it. Of the tales that have come out of the Charles Gate, though, the one that regularly rises above all the others and has a name to go with it, it's Elsa. She is the daughter of J. Pickering Putnam. Putnam was the architect of the Charles Gate and had a decorative wall tile holding Elsa's likeness placed near the elevator during the building's construction in 1891. Putnam's family lived in the Charles Gate after it was completed, and according to legend, seven-year-old Elsa fell down the elevator shaft to her death while chasing her ball across the hall. At that exact moment, the tile with her image cracked. Students claim to see the ghost of the young girl searching the halls for her ball, as well as a new friend. But the story has a glaring problem. Elsa didn't die in the elevator shelf. Nor did she die at the age of seven years old, or inside the Charles Gate at all. In fact, Elsa lived a full and active life until she passed away in 1979. So, yeah. where does the story come from? Well, uh, indeed, there was a decorative tile placed in the main lobby, and one could have very well been made in the likeness of Elsa. And of all the people that have come and gone over the years, well, it's possible that a seven-year-old girl passed away at the Charles Gate and subsequently returned to haunt the building. The sad truth is that this little girl is another unidentified spirit amongst the many at the Charles Gate, and attributing Elsa to the legend was an all-too-tempting opportunity for a storyteller to be loose with the relationship of the truth. 
other causes for the hauntings of the Carol's Gate have been noted or rumored over the years. Some point to a one-time use as a hospital. Others note it's quite possible that the Charles Gate was built over some graves in the initial construction. There are those stories that say that an evil cult lived at the Charles Gate during its tenement years. While it's become almost impossible to separate the truth from the rumor regarding the Charles Gate, it's undoubtedly one of the most storied and controversial buildings in the history of both Boston University and Emerson College. Today, the Charles Gate has left its academic days behind it. It's now a luxury condo complex with monthly rents and sale prices that are scarier than most ghost stories that we can share here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I checked. When I lived in Boston more than 20 years ago, it was scary then. It's eye-popping. Ouch. <laughs> Let me just say ouch again. Yeah. I love the city. I can never live there. Anyways. Okay. So. But yeah, it's unsurprisingly, all of these ghost stories are conveniently omitted from the uh, sales literature for Charles Gate today. Yeah. 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 Just a story, silly. So we're not quite done with Boston University yet. <laughs> the next topic is related to the infamous Boston Strangler. One of the Strangler's very last victims was Patricia Bissett, a resident of 515 Park Lane. Like the Miles Standish Hall in the Charles Gate, 515 Park Lane was a residential structure that was purchased and converted into student housing. Unlike the previously noted structures, the university didn't go through the trouble of trying to give it a name. And, well, we're, we digress. The unfortunate Patricia was reported, or excuse me, found murdered on December of 1962. And ever since her death, residents at this place have reported hearing footsteps in the middle of the night, and the building carries an entirely uneasy feeling to it. This raises the question, if the haunting is related to Patricia's murder, is it her spirit that lingers there, or some remnant of the strangler? It's easy to understand why someone might be a little unsettled knowing that it imprisoned murder or darkened the doorway of this building, even if it was over 60 years ago. Another converted Boston University building for you was the Shelton Hall. This is later renamed the Killicham Hall, built as a luxury apartment and hotel in 1923. The beautiful structure at 91 Bay State Road was first known as the Sheraton Apartment Hotel. It was attracted, excuse me, it attracted several well-to-do residents, including Hollywood musical star Jeanette McDonald, Red Sox legend Ted Williams, and Nobel Prize winning playwright Eugene O'Neill and his wife Carlotta. Eugene and Carlotta lived in Unit uh, 401 between 1951 and 1953, and then they had a tragically vile relationship. Now, most accounts O'Neill was a difficult person to live with, as Carlotta was his third wife and he had a fractured relationship with his children. O'Neill was already a tough place in a tough place with his physical and mental health when he moved out of the unit. Move into. Or excuse me, when he moved into the unit and he would die there November twenty seventh, November twenty seventh of nineteen fifty three, at the age of sixty five. During his final days, O'Neill rarely left the apartment and Carlotta lived in the apartment for a short time after O'Neill's death. During that interlude she reported her dead husband visited her on several occasions and that they had some long and meaningful long and meaningful conversation. Well, at least that happened. 
You're saying something. Yeah. Un- unfinished business? Unfinished business. Anyway, it was shortly thereafter that Boston University purchased this building to use as a women's dorm in 1954. They named it Shelton Hall. Almost immediately, students started reporting doors opening and closing on their own. Lights flickering, mysterious knocking, elevator doors would open without being summoned, and the lights on the fourth floor are perpetually dimmer than the other floors without explanation. The dormitory became co-ed in the 1970s, and in 1920, excuse me, 1913. 2013. It was renamed Killichen Hall in honor of uh, the parents of Boston University trustee Regine Killichen. It is now home to Killishan Honors College and continues to be the home of Boston University students. And no matter the name on the building, it can also continues to retain its haunted reputation. I'm done for the night. Literally. You haven't even touched your drink. Yes, I have. It's not finished, but I touched it. Barely. I drank half of it. If you say so. I do say so. But anyway, cheers, everybody. Hope that you uh, enjoyed the story tonight. This was a it was a fun one to uh, to, to research and get written up. Even and if we did trip over <laughs> even if we did trip over half the words. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, I wound up moving a wrap load of stuff to what will be volumes three, volumes four, and and, and the special international volume. So we've got at least another three haunted university, college and university scripts uh, in the works. We'll see if maybe uh, maybe they get a little dispersed among some other scripts. Who knows? Or we just got our go back to school. Go back to school in January script. Something. Something. We got something. But, yeah. Uh, anyways, what are we doing again? Uh, We're doing Massachusetts next. Followed by Louisiana, I believe. Let me see. I think that's the right order. Yes, yes. So two weeks from now, by popular demand, we have Massachusetts, which will have more stories from Boston yep. on top of the stories that we just finished with for this evening. So yep. then we're doing Haunted Louisiana uh, in at the end of the month. month. And then we're going to be for our one October um, show, we'll be doing Witches Part whatever. I think it's great. I'm pretty sure it's three. I haven't saved this part two. We're going to figure that out. I can tell you right now. I know I'm right on that. I know I'm right. I don't get to say that very often because I'm usually not. But this one I got. Got this one. He's checking. He's checking me, you two. Haunts of Richmond presents American Witch Stories, which was April 12th of 2021. And then Haunts of Richmond presents Witch Tales Volume 2, which aired January 16th of this year. We also had Haunted Salem. We did have Haunted Salem last November. And there were, of course, some witches stuff in that. Um, Yeah. So, okay, so you need to rename it to part three. Yes, it is going to be part three. Sorry, I, 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 I got to take When I'm right, I got to take it because it almost never happens. He's not going to forget it. I'll let you forget it. I'm going to forget it. You know I'm going to forget it. 
I'm going to rename that script volume three, and I'm totally going to forget because that's how I roll. But anyway, anyway. So come out, check us out for tour this month. Uh, Chris and I will also be at um, Rich Brow the last Thursday of the month for Maker's Market. Next, that's next month. So oh, sorry. It's still August. I keep trying to make it September already. I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know. But anyway. anyway. So, yes, the last Thursday of September, which is exactly one month from today, September 28th, will be at a market down at Rich Brow Brewing from 6 till 9. Beth will have her jewelry there. Yep. That'll be it, just jewelry because it's a maker's market. Yep. So, um, so we'll, we'll have the, um, I'll haunt your Well. Anyway, we'll have our cars decal stickers too. Yeah, so. mostly jewelry. But mostly jewelry will be there. And then, of course, we'll be at um, uh, Nightmare Weekend in October as panelists and as vendors. Yep. So. But we have a couple of shows before that, so we'll be definitely talking that up, and it'll be on our, we'll get it all posted and all kinds of good stuff. But in the meantime, oh. I'm sorry, I'm I'm fading fast. In the meantime, we uh, still have a tour availability basically just about every night of the week, so uh, you can check out our calendar. And if you enjoyed the campus stories that we shared tonight, you can come check out our creepy tales on campus yes. tour that we uh, that we have. You can use that, uh, book that as a pick-your-own tour, or we, um, I think we have a couple of already scheduled a couple of times in, in September. September and October. Yep, so uh, got that on the calendar a few times, and you can, of course, select it as your own. But, yeah, definitely highly recommend that one. Um, highly recommend all of our tours. Who am I kidding? Yeah. But, um, anyway. And of course, eventually, Conservation will have their corporate headquarters. Halloween bell out. We'll post pictures when it's up. Yeah. So um, still in the building process. The huge box that you see over there on the table. That's that, got pumpkins in it. That is literally the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Halloween decorations that are jam-packed in that room. I think you can, oh, yeah, you can barely see that. That's the, the, the dark blob on top of that box is Yuna. She's been that's up there. her favorite spot right now. She's going to be very upset when I start actually moving up. Yeah. Yep, so we got that, but um, we have. We bought two new skeletons. Yes, we got, I think, well, we're up to 11 skeletons now. I don't know. We got enough. Six, eight, nine. We got, we got a small. 11 if you include the two little ones. Uh, that's probably what I'm doing. We got a skeleton for every staff member. Yep. So yeah. Anyways, we got all kinds of good stuff here, and um, yeah. I guess that's it. That is it. I guess that is it for now. So we will catch you all later. Yep. At the very least, we hope to see you back here in a couple of weeks for again haunted Massachusetts. Uh, and if uh, uh, if not sooner than that, come on out and join us on a tour sometime soon. So. Hope you all have a good evening, and we'll uh, talk, chat with you all again soon. Bye. Stay spooky, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.